to talking to you all again soon. You heard there, Stuart Allcroft, who's our Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, Christopher Lee, Senior Partner at Farron, Augustine and Alexander, and also our International Economics Correspondent over in Silicon Valley, California this morning, Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this morning with that Fed meeting coming up in a few hours' time. Uh, the ASX 200 in Australia is up half a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan also up half a percent. Similar story for the Cosby. Uh, the Hang Seng is going to open in positive territory as well with a gain of about 70 points at the open this morning. Uh, thank you very much for listening this morning. Stay tuned for back chat after the news with Janice Wong and Jenny Lamb. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, sunny periods during the day, a maximum temperature of around 23 degrees. And then it's going to be windy in the next couple of days, cool with a few rain patches on Friday and Saturday. The temperature right now is 19 degrees, 84% relative humidity. Time's 8.31. Here's Barry O'Rourke with the Half Hour News. Roundtable lawmaker Michael Tien says fare increases of more than 50% for the Star Ferry are unreasonable. Yesterday, Exco signed off on the hike after taking into account the Star Ferry's financial position and affordability for the general public, although it did reject a company's application to double the fares. Mr Tien, who sits on LegCo's transport panel, said passengers should not have to pay more to ensure the Star Ferry's survival. Instead, he said government funding was the answer. I support the continuation of the Star Ferry as a landmark for Hong Kong uh, in terms of a very significant tourist attraction. But the question is, who should pay for it? That is the question. So if government views Star Ferry as a case financially, they should subsidize Star Ferry, not the passengers. Passengers should be able to pay a fair increase similar to CPI index. The head of the Real Estate Developers Association, Stuart Leung, has expressed concern about potential traffic chaos in the Kai Tak district once light public housing is built there. The government plans to build some 10,000 flats on Olympic Avenue near the Kai Tak MTR station. Mr Leung says developers generally welcome the idea of building temporary housing because there's a need for it. But he says besides this project, there are several private developments on the former runway that are almost complete and all the residents would basically be relying on the one NTR station. So our only worry is transport, whether it will jam up the entire Kaitak district. The government has told us that they have some solution to a degree. In this aspect, we think as the government has made this promise, especially that the government has a need for temporary housing, it's impossible for us to oppose this. Turning overseas, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has criticised several key policies of the new Israeli government during a meeting with the Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Mr Blinken said Washington opposed action by either side that would make a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict more difficult. On the immediate future facing the Palestinians, Mr Blinken had this to say. It's also important to continue to strive uh, not only for reducing violence, but ensuring that ultimately uh, Israelis and Palestinians alike enjoy the same rights, uh, the same opportunities. What we're, what we're seeing now for Palestinians is a shrinking horizon of hope, not an expanding one. And that too, we believe, needs to change. 
And finally, the Hollywood actor Alec Baldwin has formally been charged with involuntary manslaughter after the fatal shooting of a cinematographer on a film set. Helena Hutchins was shot while filming the Western Rust in the state of New Mexico in 2021. Mr Baldwin allegedly fired the prop gun during a rehearsal. The film's armourer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, also faces charges. We'll have more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and our guest presenter is Jenny Lam. On today's program, we're talking about falling birth rates around the world, what it means and if anything can be done to slow the trend. China's population shrank last year for the first time in six decades and Sichuan province is launching new measures in two weeks' time to allow unmarried people to legally have children, allowing them to raise a family and enjoy benefits previously reserved only for married couples. In Japan, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida says he wants his government to double spending on children-related programs because of the falling birth rate. He says Japan is facing a population crisis that must be solved now or never, warning that his country is on the brink of not being able to maintain social functions. So why are birth rates falling considered to be such a big threat? Can government programs be effective in mitigating the trend? What else can be done? After 9.15am, we'll talk about concerns over the surge in people buying rabbits as pets in the new year of the rabbit and why they probably should think twice. Let us know what you think. You can leave us a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us on backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line Paul Yip, Chair Professor of Population Health at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Social Work and Social Administration. Also on the line is Rebecca Kiffin, Associate Professor of Demography at Monash University's School of Rural Health. Good morning, Professor Yip. Uh, good morning, Jenny. Um, good morning, Janice. And uh, good morning to you, Professor Kiffin. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, Professor Yip, before we get to the effectiveness of some of the measures we just mentioned, can you first explain why low birth rate is such a big problem? Well, I think um, the low birth rate, I think it will lead to a serious uh, aging problems because I think uh, as the life expectancy, I think globally uh, has been extending and then we do not have enough replacement of the young people coming into the workforce and then that will create a large dependency ratio. So what happens, I think we uh, calculate the, the dependency ratio. We want to ensure that there will be enough people who are economically active I think in that age range I mean to support I mean the whole population growth. Yeah, so uh, Rebecca Kippen, the dependency ratio. Too many old people and not enough young people in the workforce. Um, is, is it a good idea to simply have more babies or should we be thinking about how to care for the older population in a more cost-efficient way? Well, I think we probably need a global shift in our mindset because this is an issue that's being faced around the world. Most countries now have very low fertility rates. Their populations are already declining or will start declining soon. The world population will start going down in century. And so I think countries, instead of perhaps focusing on trying to increase their birth rates, need to shift that focus to actually dealing with populations that are going to be getting smaller and much older 
into the future, and that's going to be a really big challenge. What do you, what do you think some of the possible solutions might be in caring for these increasingly old population? Uh, well, some of the policies that have been put in place around the world are, uh, for example, revamping pension programs to make sure that there's going to be enough money available for older people who are no longer working to live on. Um, also increasing the retirement age. We know that people are living much longer and they're living longer lives that are healthier. And so because of that, people might be able to, rather than retiring at 60 or 65, perhaps keep working into their 70s or beyond. Yeah, so France is doing exactly that right now and has led to protests all over the country. Yes, it's generally not well received because, of course, often people have been looking forward to retirement and are not very keen to be working for another five years or so. Right. Uh, Professor Yip, I mean, when we talked about uh, ageing population, that is a big problem. But uh, when we look at the situation in Hong Kong, we just, uh, we're just seeing that uh, some kindergartens are having trouble. They, they are um, expressing concerns that uh, many of them may have to close down because of the low birth rate, because uh, there are fewer students. What's your, uh, what's your view on that? I think the uh, low birth rate or the low birth number, I think it will become the law. I think, I think that is the situation. Uh, not only in Hong Kong, I think it, it is happening in other high-income high Asian countries as well. So I think we just uh, need to um, transform ourselves. I mean, we need to um, uh, to uh, to concentrate our our resources. I think to make um, our education or make our young people, I mean, to be more productive, um, such that they are, and hopefully they are better trained, and then. Um, if, um, I mean, for a smaller workforce, but the, uh, in terms of the productivity, I think they can um, they can be more productive than the present cohort. But, well, such as more productive. So, so right now we have a lot of um, talk about artificial intelligence and using more and more robots. Those are things that are geared towards a more sort of productive, if you if you like, society. Will, will those things help? What, what do you mean by making the young people well, more productive? I think the, young, the, the, the young people, what I mean, I think we have to train our young people well. I think such that I think they are technologically sound. I think they are also have the necessary skill set. I think to embrace the changes. Yes, I think automation, I think it is one of the things I think to help uh, to solve the uh, labor shortage problem. But at the same time, you do need the labor force. They are smart enough and they're skillful enough to embrace these changes. And also, um, we also need more uh, more innovation, I think, in our service delivery. I think this needs the people who have the knowledge and then who have the skill set. I mean, at present, I think um, uh, I think we we are not quite. Um, we are working hard, I mean, to improve our quality of young people, having I mean, to do to uh, to meet these sort of challenges. All right, and uh, Professor Kippen, earlier you mentioned uh, that uh, there needs to be a global shift in mindset. Um, now, looking at uh, what Sichuan Province is doing, it's going to launch measures uh, in two weeks' time to allow unmarried individuals to legally have a child. Um, what do you think? I mean, how effective do you think that measure will be? I mean, from what you're saying, it, it, you seem to be quite pessimistic on, on the effectiveness. Yes, well, the, um, as you know, the history of China's population policy is absolutely fascinating. So the later, longer 
fewer policies from the 1970s, so start having children later, longer birth intervals, end up with fewer children. The introduction of the one-child policy in 1980, and then this absolute reversal in 2015, where the Chinese government became very concerned about the potential for population decline and the older, the ageing of the population. And so they shifted from the one-child policy to encouraging people to have two children. Uh, then that shifted to a three-child policy. And now we've got um, individual provinces that are making further changes to try and encourage people to have more children. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to have had much impact at all. So rather than increasing China's birth rate, it's still going down. And it's actually very, very hard to shift a birth rate up once it's been declining. And so Chinese society has actually shifted to a situation where parents invest all their resources into one child. Um, they've shifted so, so that they expect to be able to go back to work after having their one child. And it's going to be very difficult to get couples to shift from having one child or even any children at all um, to having two or three children. Um, and a lot of countries around the world have faced similar situations and um, not very many, unfortunately, have been successful in increasing their birth rates with um, the introduction of new policies. All right. I have a message here from a listener, Henry. He says... Uh the Citron liberalizing child policy could be a pilot test. China is still okay currently with extensive innovation, automation, 5G, etc. And then he goes on to say China is a large country and there should be a certain minimum level of population to sustain the country. Otherwise, it would decline. And uh, that uh, message is from Henry. Um, Professor Yip, what's your assessment of uh, what Citron is doing? Um, do you think it will work? Well, I think uh, it will work for a certain portion of the women, I think, who uh, for some reason who choose not to marry and then they still would like to experience the motherhood, right? But overall, I think how does it affect the overall birth rate? Uh, I still think that the situation uh, might not uh, be very optimistic and then the effect uh, could be very limited. I think it is very much, I think, due to, I think, uh, still a very more conservative, uh, I think, culture, I think, in China. So I think, so far, I think the birth out of the workload, according to the record, I think we are talking about less than 5%. I think in comparing with the Western country, I mean, the, now we are talking about maybe 40% of the birth in the Western country, the, the, it is the birth out of the workload. And also, I think the um, the, uh, the Western country they have a more holistic support. I think for uh, these sort of children who are um, born out of the work law, I think they have a bit more comprehensive. I think the social services, I think to support them. I think so far, I think in China and and and, and I think that is the first step. I think they deal with it. I think that will be able to uh, to meet some of the of some of the women, but I, I am not that optimistic that can turn the, um, that to re can turn the things around, that the birth number will be increased substantially. 
Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, Professor Yip, I was listening to this podcast on BBC on exactly this topic about why women are unwilling to um, have children nowadays. So they went around the world and talked to uh, different people. But let's talk about Asia. So they talked about South Korea, where where the birth rate is actually the lowest in the world, as I think is 0.76% or, you know, compared with India, which is like over two. Um, And the reason why is because they just, the women just feel they cannot afford to bring up a child. Childcare is expensive. Education is expensive. And in South Korea, uh, some of the reasons these women gave was that the education system um, is so hard that they just don't want another human being to go through that experience. Isn't the answer to you know, alleviate some of these pressure on bringing up children so that women feel that they can do it? Um, you are absolutely right, because I think the feeling about the Korean women on this, I think it is very much similar felt in Hong Kong, in Japan, in Taiwan as well. I think everybody, um, I mean, the hardship, I think, to bring up, I think, their children nowadays, I think it might be too much. I mean, for the young couples, I think they also talk about the not only the economic consideration as well. I mean, now in Hong Kong, I mean, uh, I think there is, um, uh, I think the economic pressure, I mean, the financial cons- the difficulties, I think, imposed, I think, to the parents is also quite large as well. So what we think is, is not only that there's no one um, single way, I think, to deal with the situation. We do need to have a multiple way, I think, to deal with the situation, like to improve, I think, the educational environment for our children, I mean, to improve the support I mean, for the young the young family to raise up their families, and all of this family-friendly working environment that I think that uh, should be promoted, because nowadays, especially, I think, for the women, I think they are highly trained, educated, they are, they are professional sometimes because of the not so much uh, family-friendly working environment. So the women have to make a choice whether they would like to have their children or they would like to have their career advancement. And unfortunately, you know, and then these two things usually they are competing with one another. So I think that is something that we have to work on, uh, especially I think in the Asian countries. But Professor, yeah, when we look at uh, countries like Japan, who's been experiencing this uh, population crisis for for a long time, um, the government is planning to f- uh, double its spending on child-related programs, as you suggested. But uh, I mean, similar similar measures have been introduced before, but uh, it, it doesn't seem to be that in- effective, right? Well, it's, it's not effective, but it's still doing some good. I think it's better than none. I think, uh, uh, as I said, no, I mean, the small family is uh, it will be the norm, but at least, I think this will measure, it will clear up some of the barriers for those young couples who like to have children. It is because if you don't have that, I think we will lose out, I think, that uh, that segment of the society as well. So it will just make the situation worse. So at this moment, I think we do have some effective measure, at least, and then we can slow down, I think, decline and then we are buying time I think for us I think to make our infrastructure or make our uh, uh, to give us more time I think to prepare for this extremely low uh, birth rate situation. 
Right. And uh, earlier, Jenny was uh, talking about uh, the education system in South Korea that uh, may be pushing, uh, maybe uh, making women less likely to have uh, children. And here, uh, one of our listeners, Henry, again, he says that he feels that the problem lies in the increasing cost of living with uh, flat prices so high and supermarket uh, prices creeping up every week, plus wage levels remain low. He says, I'm not sure how people would like to have kids. Girls these days are not accustomed to hard chores, particularly related to bringing up kids. And uh, I know some who didn't like to give more than one birth. They felt delivery labor is too painful and it is too hard to do all the chores. And uh, that's uh, Henry's view, one of our listeners. Um, Professor Kippen, what do you think of uh, his comment? Um, I think that's a very good point. So over the last 50 years, the developed countries that have really done the best in keeping their fertility rates high are the the Nordic countries. And so they have, um, they're basically seen as uh, gender equal societies where the men and the women are both expected to contribute to the raising the children and housework and so on. And that turns out to be very important in terms of how many children women want to have is they know that they can rely on their partner to be helping out um, with the childcare and the housework. And there are also societies where um, women don't have to choose between having children and working. The societies are set up so that they can do both um, in terms of parental leave being available, subsidised childcare and so on. And so a lot of countries have have looked to the Nordic countries and tried to introduce um, similar policies. But when you have a society set up where it's expected that people are working 50 or 60 hours a week, even if you have support, it's very difficult for people to be having two or three children and to be um, working those long work weeks as well. So perhaps there could be a shift from expecting people to work 50 hours a week back to 35 or 40 hours a week Um, and then there might be some shifts in birth rates with those sorts of policies. The twist is though that those Nordic countries that have been held up as very good examples over the last five years or so have also seen um, great declines in their birth rates as well. So we're starting to wonder if those sorts of policies are still going to be effective. And it might be the case that people are starting to be uh, obviously very concerned about what's happening with the the environment, globally, climate change and so on, and might be thinking about restricting the number of children they have because of those concerns. Yeah, so you mentioned the Nordic countries. Uh, You know, one of the... things that they have done in in Denmark and the Netherlands, for example, is, uh, you must have heard of these, they're dementia villages for old people. So they're looking for ways to solve this problem of caring for a large older population when they can't increase the birth rate. Um, Do you think more can be done in, for example, this part of the world? Um, Yes, absolutely. And um, so I think a Every country is um, is going to be dealing with much older populations, and in some ways that's a good thing. It's because we have uh, greatly improved medical care and healthcare, so people are living much longer lives. But it, it, it of course means that we need to provide care for those people and support 
um, and those kinds of initiatives that you mentioned, I think, will be very important. Mm-hmm. Professor, you, you, I mean, you, we're sitting here talking about um, increasing fertility rate as if that's a goal and a necessity. Is it really? I mean, we, this planet cannot support a lot more people, can it? Well, I think uh, think a hundred years ago, I think uh, we'll be uh, asking the same question. I think the population size has increased by three times already. You know? So, so, so I think it is just as a matter of fact how. Are we managing our our resources? I mean, since the industrial revolution, I think we have expanded our production, the food, the efficiency, and now we have dealing with the AI revolution. So I think we just have to embrace the changes, right? So, so I think our planet, yes, we are, the planet is not getting bigger, but I think with the uh, I think the innovation, I think uh, we can uh, make the planet as a as, as, as a living space, and then provided we all uh, have to protect our environment, and then we make sure we, we uh, make use of all our, all our resources, I think, have a, have, have a better distribution. I think that there's a lot of places, I think we have excesses of the things that some, some places, I think they are in a heavy uh, deprivation. All right. I, I have a message here from Malcolm. He says, world population is growing exponentially and has doubled since the 1970s. Governments and their policies are short-sighted and selfish with a focus on economics and competition. Our growing population on this planet is quite clearly not sustainable, as Jenny just mentioned, and this fact needs to be acknowledged. And uh, that's from Malcolm. I have another email here from Mike. He says, um, Let's see. Um, Continue to consume pharmaceuticals and continue to eat processed foods. Population explosion control solved. And uh, that message is from Mike. Um, What's your view, uh, Professor Kippen? Um, Well, it's certainly true that over the last 200 years, world population has been growing exponentially. So um, in a very short period of time in terms of world history, we've gone from one billion people to the current population of eight billion people. The good news is because birth rates have declined so dramatically around the world, the latest world population projections indicate that the world population will top out at about 10 billion people if those fertility declines continue or stabilise and that the world population will be declining by the end of this century. Um, so in terms of environmental concerns, that's actually very good news. Yeah, when we talk about declining birth rates, now, um, the, some of the countries that have the highest fertility rates are also countries that have the highest child mortality rate. So, for example, India, uh, which has a fertility rate of uh, 2.1, uh, 2.14 births uh, per per woman, uh, woman on average, they also have a childhood mortality of 26.6 per thousand children. So there's a great inequality here. You know, they're having more children, more of those children die. Um, when, when developed nations such as, well, I mean, um, Japan and South Korea, when we talk about trying to increase their fertility, isn't, isn't that sort of the great inequality in, in, in the world? You know, more fertility doesn't necessarily mean those children survive. Professor Kippen? 
Yes, that's right. Um, well, traditionally, there's been a very strong link between declines in child mortality and declines in fertility. So once children start to... Parents can be sure that their children will survive. Um, they tend to have fewer children. And you're right that there's, um, there's a great divide internationally. So India still has relatively high birth rates um, and the countries in sub-Saharan Africa as well. So some of those countries still have birth rates, four, five, six births per woman um, and very high child mortality rates as well. Um, so certainly in many countries we still need to focus on public health measures so that the children that are being born, um, we can be fairly confident that they're going to grow up to adulthood. Right. When we talk about uh, just just briefly, when we talk about um, um, trying to increase birth rates, are there any real success stories? I mean, I know, for example, Germany has had some success in raising its birth rates uh, through um, increasing services uh, for for parents. Uh, is there is there um, a country, a good example that we we can look at, Professor Kippen? Uh, well, there, yes, so you, you're right, there's Germany, um, the, you mentioned before Sweden and Denmark, so in the past they've had policies that um, rather than increasing their birth rate, they've tended to sustain a birth rate that was already pretty good. The, the examples where countries have been able to reverse very low fertility and increase that to a sustainable level, I, I actually can't think of any because it's very difficult to do to kind of um, reverse the way society is set up when the birth rate is already very low. All right, so Professor Kippen, unfortunately we're out of time because uh, we need to take a short break for the news. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Rebecca, Rebecca Kippen, Associate Professor of Demography at Monash University School of Rural Health. And uh, Professor Yip will continue our discussion in three minutes' time when we will be joined by William Pesek, Tokyo-based journalist and author. If you have any comments or questions for our guests today, remember you can email us at backchat at rthk or give us a call at 233-88266. And uh, here's a quick Look at the weather, mainly cloudy, sunny intervals during the day with highs of around 22 degrees. Winds moderate easterlies and the outlook windier in the next couple of days. Right now, the temperature reading at the observatory is 19 degrees, relative humidity 83%. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Jenny Lam and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Paul Yip, Chair Professor for Population Health at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Social Work and Social Administration. Also joining us now is William Pisek, Tokyo-based journalist and author. Good morning, Mr. Pisek. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Now, in my introduction this morning, I mentioned how Japan's Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, warned that uh, his country was on the brink of not being able to maintain social functions because of uh, the population crisis. Mr. Pesek, is the situation really that bad in Japan right now? Well, it is because one of the, uh, the, you know, the, the parts that Kishida did not mention is debt. Uh, Japan's debt is approaching about 260% of GDP, that's the highest debt burden among developed nations. And you could argue that Japan's demographic trajectory would be less problematic if the debt were not rising in the opposite direction. And so I think that's really the acute problem. And I think what really struck a lot of us here is I've been in Japan for about 20 years now. I've, this is my 10th government that I've covered. 
And I've never heard a government speak in such kind of existential terms, if you will, about the problem. Prime Minister Kishida said that Japan is, quote, on the brink of not being able to maintain social functions, end quote. He's talked about this as a now or never issue. He's talking about this as an issue that simply cannot be ignored anymore. And so it is interesting to see the sudden bit of urgency on the part of the government. It's not clear that the policies that they're talking about will fix the problem, but it is interesting that there is a sudden burst of energy and urgency as 2023 begins. What are the, some of those social functions that are no longer working? Well, I mean, really the economy. Um, you know, Japan is literally running out of workers at this point. And because uh, efforts to recruit more foreign talent have, uh, you know, basically fallen by the wayside, Japan literally has a worker shortage on its, on its hands. And so uh, when you go to a lot of restaurants now, convenience stores, we're seeing more and more of these kind of ATM-like situations as opposed to waiters and waitresses. And that is a direct response to the fact that Japan is using more robotics, if you will, more AI to get around the fact that Japan is running out of workers. And so it's become an acute economic problem as, the, as, the, uh, you know, as, as Asia evolves. And as the population in this region swells, Japan is moving in the opposite direction. So, so, so how, does, how, how do people in, in the society in Japan respond to this increasing use of AI as opposed to young people? Well, I think it's been a bit of an eye-opener. It, really it really does seem like the last six months or so. I mean, I walked into a local drugstore uh, last night just, you know, just to buy some you know, hair care products, and suddenly I was confronted with this screen that I had to use as opposed to the cashier. There's been a lot of you know, chatter about it, certainly, and people see it as a sign of where things are going. Restaurants, in many cases now, are using specifically QR codes as opposed to human waitresses, waiters, that sort of thing. Uh, maitre d's um, are sort of becoming a thing of the past here. And so I think that there is a, I think maybe things have reached ahead in terms of the demographics and the economic constraints that are being caused by that. And so the Prime Minister is talking about maybe doubling spending on childhood-related uh, programs. So uh, what should that money be spent on specifically? What are some of the most needed programs? Well, I mean, you know, one of the, the problems here in Japan, one of the reasons why people simply are not having more children is the cost, the cost of education, the cost of child-rearing. And so anything the government can do to defray costs of child-rearing um, of, of education might help uh, young couples have more babies, certainly that would be a step in the right direction. But I think the bigger problem is what they're not talking about, and that is Japan Inc. Um, this is a very, you know, sort of rigid, patriarchal society, and it still is the case that it's very hard for, A, women in the workforce to have a baby and, and you know, basically return to the workforce productively afterwards. A lot of fathers, young fathers, have a hard time taking, you know, parental leave, and so a lot of couples... They might have one baby, but having two for many is just not an option, and the government needs to incentivize families to have more than one child or a child at all. Well, when we look at the uh, the new measures, uh, I mean, the Japanese government, it has um, announced similar measures in the past, but it, it's not been that successful. So, I mean, they're still not really changing anything, are they? And, you know, to, to your point, they talk a lot and they do very little. Again, this is my, my 10th government since being here. And every government at some point does turn to the issue of demographics and the fact that we need to incentivize um, increasing the birth rate. Um, it just 
never seems to happen. And one of the, the things about Kashida is he's talking very urgently about the need to, to do this, but he's talking about setting up a panel that begins in April. I mean, why not today? Why not tomorrow? Why April? Because that means that we're probably looking at 2024 before anything might be possibly implemented. And so, yeah, there is this talk of urgency, but in terms of doing, we don't see a lot of energy on the ground here, and that's, that's a bit disheartening. And what about uh, uh, maybe like considering uh, changes in immigration law? Is it something that uh, Japan um, is reluctant to consider? Well, I mean, you know, Japan, again, has been talking, I mean, since, certainly since um, in, over the last 10 years, if you will, when Prime Minister, the late Prime Minister Abe uh, became Prime Minister 10 years ago, there was a lot of talk about importing new talent. But it's easier said than done. One of the problems that Japan is having is, is language. Um, you, know, you can arrive in Singapore, you can arrive in Hong Kong as a startup or a business person, and you can generally operate in English. That is not the case in Japan. I mean, there's a lot of paperwork here one has to deal with that's not, they don't do a very good job of helping translate the information. And if you don't have good Japanese skills, it's very hard to operate here. So in, in some ways, Japan's Society is still averse to importing lots of labor, and a lot of foreigners, if they have options in Asia, Japan is really not the first choice because taxes are high, costs are high, and communicating uh, can be very difficult. All right. Professor Yip, uh, what, what, what do you have to say about uh, what uh, uh, Mr. Pesek has been uh, has been talking about? I mean, um, would would uh, changing immigration law um, be, be uh, workable for for other places, for example, as well? Well, I think one thing is. Uh, I mean, the Japanese government, they fully realize the urgency and then I think the importance of this population problem, you know, which is, uh, I think, some other countries, they're not uh, fully addressed, like in Hong Kong. You know. But and then for the migration, yes, I think why some of the Western countries, they uh, still can maintain their total fertility rate uh, well above two. It's not only because of um, the uh, productivity of the women uh, the locally, but also they bring in the foreign migrants, I think, like in U.S., in Australia, and in United Kingdom. So I think one thing what we can do, I think if we can make our immigration law, I think, more inclusive and more, um, uh, more more inviting, I think, for, uh, for other people to come in, I think that will certainly help. I think, uh, like in Hong Kong situation, I mean, if you remember, I think in uh, 2013, I mean, when we have those, those called the type 2 babies, you know, I mean, the people coming in, I mean, they give birth, you know, so, so, we, so we, we do have the babies around, you know, but, but it's just, just how we manage them. You know. So, but if you make your place more welcoming and then you, you can bring in uh, the people from other places to replace your older generation, I think that is a way, I think, to keep your society young and sustainable. You know, during the break, Janice and I were just talking about how, you know, we're both working women and we both have uh, foreign domestic helpers uh, so that we can actually go to work when our children, uh, well, mine have grown up and hers are growing up. So, uh, you know, Hong Kong immigration does allow that to happen. Um, now, mainland China may be a different case. How, 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 Professor Yip, what are some of the challenges um, in, in that sense that you see in mainland China? I think in mainland China, they do have the surprise of the landies. Now, I think if you are rich enough, I think you might not be able to bring in the Filipinos helper, but you still can 
bringing the nannies from the rural area from a rural region I mean, to come to the city to help you out, you know. But I think what happened in China, it is really, I think it is the aspiration of the women, the young working women in modern China now. They just do not want to have that many children. And sometimes I think they don't even uh, bother to get married. I mean, so, so, so I think what we are seeing, this is a small family size has become the norm, I think, of the modern China, and especially when the young women, they are better educated, they're more financial independent. I think they would also like to have a life of themselves. And also you, the other thing is that you will see there's a quite a, not a small proportion of the people, I mean, for those people who have left China, I mean, to go for study, and then they choose not uh, to stay uh, out of the country. You know? so, so these are the, the problem, which accelerate accelerate, I think, the, uh, the, the decline of the fertility in China. Right. Uh, one of the things that William Passack uh, pointed out about Japan is that when you, even if you import um, labor from a different country, in Japan, language is a problem. This will be a problem for mainland China as well. You know, people can't just, they go, go to China and not understand the language and integrate and work there. Do you do you think that would be the case? I think China is a bit more or more more open-minded. I think than in Japan. I think that, that that's my experiences. Now, I think when you go to China, I think yes, even if you do not know Chinese, I think I think the Chinese people, I think they would tend to um, be more willing, I mean, to communicate with you in. Uh, in English, right? but I think in Japan it is the other way around. No? So, so I think in China, I think if we, if can make, if they can make the system or make the society, the environment a bit more inclusive and more welcoming, I think that, uh, and also the opportunities are there, right? So we're talking about the Greater Bay areas and all this sort of thing. These are the opportunities which uh, attract uh, the foreign talents, I think, to come to China. All right. So in the first half of the program, we sort of uh, talked about how um, about the low birth rate, how um, many women may, may view it as uh, being uh, too much work. And uh, I have a message here from listener Henry. He says, uh, perhaps we should note that in the old days, my mother said the old saying, heaven gives us the child, heaven will take care of the bringing up of the kids. So not much problem in having babies. These days, those uh, old sayings must have gone to the rubbish bin. And uh, that uh, message is from Henry. Um, Professor Yip, uh, do you think um, a lot of uh, this is uh, this low birth rate issue is mainly to do with, um, is partly to do uh, to do with uh, our expectations on our kids? Are we doing too much? I mean, for example, like we take kids to, for tutoring classes. Uh, there are more extracurricular activities. Um, is that an issue? It is a yes and no. I think yes. I think uh, uh, we do uh, raise the bar. We do have a higher expectation than our parents uh, on our children. But as a matter of fact, but I think the world has changed. Right? The context has changed. I mean, the competition has changed. So we just have to live with the changes. So, so I, I but yeah, you, uh, I think the listener, yes, what is what you say is right. I mean, we might have over anxious about the situation, but. Uh, uh, at the same time, I think I think the present environment do make the parents very anxious. You know? So I think uh, it is really hopeful that I mean, the government can uh, have some very tangible measure to address I think the concern of the parents. I think uh, 
term, uh, they, they uh, uh, they, uh, try to open more supporting system. I mean, for those people who are academic gifted or non-academic gifted, and such that they still can bring the best uh, out of um, our young people. And Mr. Mr. Pesek, I mean, is, is that also a big um, issue in Japan? I mean, um, parents' expectations on the kids, uh, like uh, taking them to tutoring classes and other extracurricular activities. Is, is, do you think that that's a main factor in, uh, or, or a significant factor in, uh, in fewer people um, having kids? I think so, yes. I mean, you have seen, you know, here in North Asia, for example, in both Japan and perhaps even more so in South Korea, you do see this kind of education arms race, if you will, where it's becoming much more competitive to be a child <laughs> than it was when I was growing up in, in New York City uh, back in the day, certainly. But I think that, you know, culture in Japan really does matter. And in many ways, it's very much about high costs, but it's also about the, the, basically the, the, the patriarchy. It's just it's not making space for women and families who need more flexibility in the workplace. The Japanese worker really hasn't had a significant raise in about 30 years while costs for child rearing have risen exponentially. And I'm not just talking the last couple of years of supply chain issues. I'm just talking about the cost of, of, edu of education, the cost of tutoring, uh, the cost of transportation. And so it really is an economic issue here in Japan. And I think the government needs to do more to defray the cost for families. And if they literally need to subsidize families to have more children, the way Singapore has over the last 20 years, they should consider doing that. It's considered a big gauche maybe here in Japan to do that, but I think that the end justifies the means when you literally are bleeding people. Japan only had about 800,000 800, births last year out of a population of 127 million people. Something has to give, and if the government doesn't act, this is going to become a more acute problem going forward as the debt increases. Is there a disparity between the rural parts of Japan and, and the big cities? There is. I mean, Japan, you know, Japan has experienced a very, very rapid uh, urbanization in recent decades. I mean, China certainly is experiencing it as we speak. But Japanese cities are highly concentrated. The rural areas really are, in, in many cases, they're literally dying. I mean, it's fascinating to go for a weekend to one of these uh, hot spring towns, these onsen towns. And it just feels like everyone's over 75 and the population is thinning. So a lot of this has to do with, you know, urban planning. A lot of this has to do with urban officials doing more to defray the cost of child care. And again, we're seeing talk of it. We're seeing a panel being set up in April. And we're seeing some urgency, at least rhetorically. But the question is, when does Japan act on this issue after 20 years of talking about it? Hopefully this is the year. I'm not really sure. All right, uh, Mr. Pesek, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, William Pesek, Tokyo-based journalist and author. Many thanks also to Paul Yip, Chair Professor of Population Health at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Social Work and Social Administration. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. It's now 19 minutes past nine and it's time to move on to our next topic. And it's about rabbits or concerns over a surge in people buying them as pets in the new year. To tell us more, we're now joined on the line by Bonnie Luke, a volunteer at the Hong Kong Rabbit Society. Good morning, Miss Luke. Good morning. Bonnie will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the program. So, Bonnie, are, are more people buying rabbits now? Um, it's always, uh, people always like rabbit because they thought that it's like... Um, tiny, easy to raise, and uh, it doesn't cost that much for some of the bread. Yes, they do. 
Um, are they good pets? We always talk about breeding like rabbits. When you get one, you probably get more, like like chinchillas and guinea pigs. Are they good pets? <laughs> oh, yes, they are. They um, usually when 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 the rabbits like they get together, like a male and female get together, they, they breed pretty easily, and yeah, and they have a lot. But then it's pretty hard to raise if you have baby uh, baby rabbits because you need some experience and extra care to take care of them. Yeah, they breed like rabbits, but then at the same time, they die pretty easily sometimes. Yes, they are fed well. All right. Bonnie, you just mentioned that more people are buying rabbits. Is it because uh, of the um, Lunar New Year? Or is it just um, in general, they're just more popular? In general, it is popular. Because, yeah, rabbit is always popular. and But then, yeah, your rabbit is another gimmick for the people, for the shops to sell the rabbits as well. And also, another popular season is Easter. So they thought, like, oh, rabbits. And then they, uh, some of the parents actually buy rabbits for the kids as a gift, so as a, like, life toy or something. So, yeah, they do, especially year of rabbit. Like, they got another excuse to buy them. Right. Right. Bonnie, can I just ask you a very simple question? What is the Hong Kong Rabbit Society? Um, the Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong Rabbit Society is a... Uh, NGO organization, we uh, we pick up the abandoned rabbits and try to cure them, make sure they are healthy and arrange adoption for them. So so how many abandoned rabbits do we have in Hong Kong? Uh, uh, we've got more than 100. Uh, in the center, with, uh, under intensive care, it's like 100. And then there are some in the in the foster care, uh, foster home as well. So, yeah, I think... More than hundreds, I think. Exact number. I need to check on that. I'm sorry. Okay. Why are people giving them up? Um, there are a few reasons. First of all, is the medical bill. Like, yes, rabbit is not as expensive as a lot of cats and dogs, but then the medical could be as as expensive as they are. And also, some of the people, some of the family leave town, and they don't always bother to arrange the rabbits to go with them and last but not least sometimes like they have a passion at the beginning when they want the rabbit oh they're so cute and then after some time they have underestimated the care and love and time which they need to take care of the rabbit so they abandon them when you say you have some under intensive care what is mm -hmm. wrong with those rabbits uh some of the rabbits uh, we took in because of the owner or, or we call them parents, uh, didn't, didn't want, cannot afford the medical bills. So they are sometimes of the, they have issue, health issues, and some of them, uh, they have broken legs, or they are not moving very well. So they, they have to have, like, uh, having mats every twice a day, and also some of them don't eat very well. We have to actually feed them by hand or something. So that, that, that does take, a lot of love and care for them. So before you go and buy your child a bunny as a little pet, what are some of the things that you have to think about as a parent? For example, how long is a rabbit going to live? Um, first of all, uh, yeah, if you, uh, when, you, when you are thinking of adopting a rabbit or kept keeping a rabbit, uh, first of all, you have to consider the lifespan. They could be like from 10, they could be living as long as 10 to 14 years. That is a, like, like a yeah, dog. More than a decade. Yeah, more than a decade commitment. Yeah. <laughs> and also, you have to consider how much time you need to take care of, uh, how much time you're going to spend with them. Like a dog, you're going to walk them every day. But then for rabbit, at least, not only just cleaning their cages, like re 
uh, that you also have to like feed them, play with them, spend time with them at the same time. So it's like double the time for me. We all know dogs and cats. I mean, dogs especially. They, you know, they they need to socialize um, mm-hmm. with the owners. Do do rabbits do that? Um, some of the it depends on the characteristic of the rabbit. Some of the rabbits like to hug you and sit on your sit on your lap. Some of them just like to run around you. So you have to be there for them to run around. But then they they don't like they they're like cats, but they want you to be there. Right. Well, so depend on the characteristic of the rabbit. Most people who keep rabbits, uh, like guinea pigs, etc., they're in a cage, right? Is, uh-huh. is that good for the bunny? Um, it depends on the size of the bunny. Um, but then, at the same time, if they are in the cage, they do need time to be out of them to like stretch and lick and so on. So it's a bit different from guinea pigs. Like they stay in there and run the reel. But rabbit need to run around as well. So you have to have special so space. Uh, senses. Space, uh, like a safe space, so that they are not. They 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 love like anything. They like to chew on anything, especially cables. <laughs> it would be safer to have like a safe safe area for them to run around. Yeah, actually, I just want to share the story that a friend of mine, whose son had a rabbit. The rabbit chewed the television cable, and the television <laughs> actually exploded. Um, oh yeah, that happens. <laughs> That happens. So, so um, you said you have more than a hundred rabbits abandoned. What do you do with them? Um, ideally, we try to like the best case scenario is like we check them up to make sure they are healthy. We dissect them, make sure like so that they don't have any more babies, and then we try to find their adopt uh, find their adopted parents. Like hopefully one day, like after uh, uh, some people were like, oh, I want a rabbit, and then they go through the procedure, and then yes and training and we send them home to the new home i mean <laughs> right you mentioned that uh, that quite a few people have, have been abandoned abandoning their their rabbits in the past i mean have you seen an increase over the few uh, the past few years um it does sometimes it's from time to time yeah but then uh it, it, it yeah this few years have been a lot but a lot a lot of situation is like the families leaving hong kong and they are not able to take. They said, claim that they are not able to take them, take the rabbits with them. Yeah, that 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 is. That we have a few cases, uh, like a number of cases, not a few, a number of cases of those as well. Mm. I I remember seeing a story. Um, I think this was at Discovery Bay a, a, a while back of a family that had a pair of chinchillas, and the chinchillas starting having many chinchillas. For rabbits, if you have a pair of rabbits. How many small bunnies are we expecting in a year? Oh, it could be hit lots, lots. It could be like uh, we could have uh, at least eight a few months or something. So eight in a few months. Ready, yeah, they, when they are ready. Uh, so that's why we try to like if you want, you will like we suggest to have one rabbit and have you as their company <laughs> because like um, uh, if they are the same gender, they might fight. <laughs> So, yeah, so it could breed pretty serious. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, how, how common is it for Hong Kong families to um, keep rabbits nowadays? I mean, you, you know, if you, if you, dogs and cats, they require a lot of care and space. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some parents might well think, well, a little rabbit in a cage is, is probably no harm. Um, mm-hmm. So you mentioned time and space for the rabbit uh, what else but you know medical cost what about feeding it 
um, feeding it. You should a healthy rabbit will eat with them, uh, eat by themselves. They are pretty good. And then you have a lot of dry hay as well, and it, and also you need fresh vegetable every day. So they are happy with the fresh food and the dry and and, and, and dry, the dry hay and then fresh vegetables and like all those all those food as well. And ideally, if uh, if I I don't have a rabbit right now, but long time ago, like I do have like spend time. Every night, like have, just have a pet with them, have some chat. Like if they want, if that my rabbit, like she, she wants to come out from the cage, I let them in. Like find, make sure it's on a safe ground, mm. <laughs> tables away. You, you're sure a volunteer for the Hong Kong Rabbit Society. How many yes. people are in the Hong Kong Rabbit Society? Um, we got about fifty, around fifty, sixty, or more volunteers to be around. We got a a handful of committee and yeah so we're running them we i think we got quite a lot of volunteers to help out in different section to right help uh, out with the rabbit and the event and so on and bonnie you said you expect uh, more people to buy rabbits uh, because of the chinese new year and because they are mm-hmm. just more popular now um mm-hmm. what advice do you have for um pet owners who, who have rabbits? I mean, if they are having trouble um, taking care of them, um, what advice do you have for them to, to uh, um, sort of stop them from abandoning them? Uh, do you, does your society if, if offer already, assistance? Yes, we do. Uh, if they already have a rabbit and they are having trouble with it, like I see something like symptoms and signs that the rabbit is not feeling well, yeah, give them a call. Can, can you, uh, you can call some of the staff in the uh, we got a few staff too uh so the staff they would give you a good advice like uh how to help the rabbit and the best is to go to see the vet before it's too late because like later the later we found a, a problem and it's getting serious the medical bill will be much higher All right. <laughs> so that would be something uh mm-hmm. yes we do help and then also um consult our organization or other or any other ngos because instead of consulting the shop because sometimes a lot of the snacks in the market is not good for rabbits, so okay. that would be something that you might need. To, they might need to know and uh, allowed me uh, carrots. Carrots is not good for rabbits. All right, really. All right, Bonnie. I'm afraid we're out of time. Thanks again for joining okay. us this morning. And that's uh, Bonnie Luke, a volunteer at the Hong Kong Rabbit Society. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today, and of course to our guest presenter Jenny Lam and producer Yuki. Now here's the weather: mainly cloudy, sunny intervals during the day, with highs of around 20.